you could stand for the reading. This is from Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. A couple months back, I was, I need to adjust that a little bit. A couple months back, I was sitting at a, a pool while my kids were swimming, and I, uh, there was some shade, and so I went and grabbed a chair and brought it over to some other chairs that were around there, and um, apparently I put it a little bit too close to these other chairs this other family had set up there. And so I swam for a while, I came back, and this guy, he greets me with, you got a lot of nerve putting your chair there. <laughs> I was very confused at first. I didn't know what was happening. I'm not used to that kind of interaction. Uh, various scenarios went through my head about how I could react, which would not be appropriate. Uh, later, the guy's wife said, you know, sorry, he's, he's a little stressed. He's watching all these grandkids. I'm like, yeah, he is a little stressed. Um, this, was a, this was a pretty minor insult, okay? But I tell you that because it was a reminder to me that when you are insulted, it stings. It does not make you want, at least me, want to rejoice and be glad. This kind of interaction with this kind of person usually makes me want to go far away from that person. Last week in our passage, Jesus tells his disciples, the world is going to persecute you. It's going to insult you. It's going to speak evil against you because of me. And when that happens, you are not to turn away from the world. You're not to hide. You're actually to turn around and go back to that same world that's persecuting you because you are salt and light. These are the two metaphors that Jesus uses in this passage to describe his disciples, and this comes right on the heels of these double blessing for those who are persecuted. And what I want, I want to start this morning by you noticing something. Jesus does not say to his disciples, be the salt of the earth or be the light of the world. Jesus says, this is what you are. When you become a disciple of mine, when you put your trust in me, when you begin to follow me, you become salt and light to the world. I think sometimes we add like a should in there. We are disciples, therefore we should be salt to the earth. We should be light to the world. I think it's like the equivalent of you're a disciple and then you get bonus points and extra credit if you're also salt and light to the world around you. You go out on mission. But that is not what Jesus says. Jesus says, this is who you are. You're my disciple. You are salt. You are light. Being salt and light doesn't mean we get extra credit. It means if we don't do that, we have completely missed out on what it means to follow Jesus. But why salt and light? Of all the things that Jesus could have chosen, why these two things to use as metaphors, disciples? Salt and light. So back in Jesus' day would have been, well, one, for, for example, these were extremely common, extremely useful back then and today. 
Uh, salt would have been used for seasoning food like we use it today. Um, just think how powerful salt is. I'm, here's the time of year I'm always the most amazed at the power of salt. It's when I make turkey soup after Thanksgiving. Every, every, every year, Friday, Saturday after Thanksgiving, I, I take the carcass and I put it in this pot. This is my mom's recipe. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll put a link to the, the recipe in the show notes. I, I put a carcass in the pot. I put water in there. I chop up onions. I chop up carrots. I chop up onions. I throw it all in there. And I let it boil for hours. I then pick off the meat off the bones. I put that back in the pot and I taste it and nothing. I'm always amazed at how extremely bland it is. And so, on my mom's instructions, you begin to pour in the salt, and it's like magic. All the, the salt begins to work its way into the broth, and it just begins to release all this flavor. It's so good. And then I take that turkey soup, and I put it over rice, and I begin to pour Tabasco on it. Because I love hot sauce. And I taste it again, and you know what it tastes like now? Tabasco. See, rather than penetrating and releasing flavor, hot sauce, as much as I love it, it has a tendency to mask over flavor. But salt is completely different. Salt doesn't mask flavor. Salt releases flavor. It penetrates something, whether it's meat or broth, and in doing so, it releases the goodness of that thing. In addition to seasoning food, salt would have been also used to preserve food. We don't, this is strange for us. We have refrigeration, but back then you would salt meat. It would keep it from decaying. It would stop that bacteria from growing, slow that natural decay process. And so, through seasoning or preservation, salt would improve the world around it. Okay, I think Jesus chooses salt because it has these positive attributes to it. But salt is only effective if it interacts with something else. Okay, salt that stays in the salt shaker is, is essentially useless. Disciples of the earth improve the world around them but they're only effective if they get out of the salt shaker. Only effective if disciples get out and penetrate the world around them, improving it, seasoning it, and preserving it. But there's something else about salt that I think is really uh, important, and salt is distinctive. Okay, actually, if salt loses its distinctiveness, it actually is pretty worthless. Jesus says in our passage, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? This is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So imagine taking your salt shaker and you pour some salt in your hand and you taste it and it's nothing. What do you do at this point? Do you salt the salt? I, I tasted the salt and I think it just needs a little more salt. No, it's worthless at that point. Throw it out. Salt is only good because it's distinctive. If it loses that, Jesus says this, it's, it becomes worthless. Same with light. The benefit of light is that it contrasts with darkness. That's why Jesus said, you take that light, you put it under a bowl, it's worthless. The whole purpose of that light is to illuminate, it's to contrast with the darkness. This is tricky. Because we see in this salt metaphor that we are, as disciples, called to move towards the world, to penetrate the world, to season the world. Okay, Jesus is not, we're up on the mountain, we're in the series of the Sermon on the He's trying to form, he is forming a community of disciples. These are not a community who will then become hermits and flee from the world. These are disciples, as we talked about, who now turn towards the world. Okay, Jesus, in a sense, he kicks us out of the salt shaker. He, he kicked, we're, we're, we, we prefer to be under a bowl, maybe, and Jesus just takes that bowl off and says, you've got to get out of there. You've got to get out of this place of comfort and safety, and you've got to get out into the world for the sake of the world. 
season it, to preserve it, to improve it. We cannot seal ourselves off from the world. Okay, but on the other hand, if we go out into the world and we assimilate into the world, if we become completely absorbed by the world, we really have nothing to offer at that point. Because there, become, there, there loses any distinctiveness between disciples and the world around them, and we lose our ability to offer something. I think, it's a, I think this is a good sign. How, how are we at Midway doing and being good at, at being salt and light? I think a good sign is that we are out in our communities, penetrating them, seasoning them, improving them. We're not just stuck in a salt shaker. But also that the world, the community, is finding its way in here. In other words, like we're out in the world more, and the world's in here more. We want to be a community that holds on to this distinctive of disciples, that does not get assimilated and absorbed into the world. We cannot lose that, but we cannot be hermetically sealed off from the world. The world's got to find its way in here. Salt season, salt preserves, salt is distinct. Guess what? I taste a little salt in preparation for this sermon, and it has a bite to it, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't call us to be hot sauce, okay? He doesn't call us to go out and scorch the world around us, to burn it down as disciples. But guess what? Jesus doesn't call us to be honey. Isn't that interesting that Jesus didn't choose honey for the metaphor? Jesus doesn't want disciples to go out into the world and just sugarcoat everything and call what is good, what is not good, good, and what is bad, good. Salt has a bite to it. Salt actually can expose things. Think about it, if you've ever walked into an ocean and maybe you didn't even realize you had a cut on your foot or your leg, you step into that ocean, you hit that salt water, boom, you know there's a wound there. It exposes it. If you follow the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, it won't be hot sauce, it won't be honey. It'll be salt. We'll be this distinct community. We'll be this contrast society that both attracts the culture around us and at times is offensive to the culture around us. Larry Hurtado, who was a historian of early Christianity, he writes a couple of books, and he's exploring this question of this small little movement of disciples, Christians, uh, ex experienced lots of persecution, and yet they grow, they spread like wildfire around the Roman Empire. How did that happen? Well, some of the, he, one article about these books talks about some of the distinctive things about the early church. Early church was very distinct from the culture around it. It both attracted the culture and it challenged it. Here's a few of those distinctives that Hurtado highlights. The church was a multiracial and multi-ethnic. Followers of Jesus were united by their faith in him, which is more important than their national identity. They formed into a community of people consisting of people from all walks of life, people who normally didn't associate with each other. Unheard of at the time. The church was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. Christians in the early church were persecuted, criticized, excluded, imprisoned, attacked, and they taught forgiveness and retaliation, which was unheard of in the culture. Number three, the church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and suffering. Hey, it was normal at the time in the Roman Empire to help your own family, your own tribe, but what was so strange about these Christians is that they helped those who were not in their tribe. They helped the poor, other races, uh, during the, the urban plagues, rather than fleeing the cities, they would stay there and care for the sick and dying. Number four, it was a community committed to the sanctity of life. 
It wasn't just that Christians were opposed to abortion. They were. Abortion was very rare then. They were opposed to a more common practice called infant exposure, where unwanted infants were thrown out into garbage heaps to die. So Christians would go and take those infants, and they would raise them themselves. And lastly, it was a sexual counterculture. Christian sexual norms were different than the Roman culture. For, for example, they forbid sex outside of marriage, which would have been kind of strange. But what was really strange about these Christians was that they applied these standards not just to women, but to men too. And rather than seeing sex as just another physical appetite to be satisfied, the early Christians saw sex as a way to give yourself fully to another person, and in doing so, imitate and connect the God gave himself to Christ, in Christ. The early church was able to affect the world around it precisely because it was different than the world around it. It was salt. It was distinctive. It didn't fit in with the surrounding culture. It challenged the surrounding culture in love. Imagine with me today a community that stresses the importance of racial reconciliation and the dangers of Christian nationalism, that refuses to retaliate verbally or physically when insulted, that shows radical hospitality to the poor and the immigrants, that is totally committed to the sanctity of life from womb to tomb, that has high sexual ethics, teaching that sex is only intended for marriage, even when that is totally out of sync with the culture. That would be a distinct community. That would be a distinct community, not even just against the world. It would be a distinct community against other churches who often pick some of those but leave the others out. Here's the deal. I don't think our biggest challenge at Midway is being a hot sauce kind of community. I know you all been here five years. I don't see a lot of scorching going on in our community. I'll include myself in this one. Here's our challenge. We do not want to be offensive. We'd rather go quiet than be offensive. And if you feel that way, if you're like that, if, you're, if that's your uh, predilection, here's two things I want to say to you. Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Okay, this because of me is really important. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you because you are obnoxious. Following Jesus makes us distinct. Following Jesus will make us offensive to the culture around us. Following Jesus should not make us obnoxious. It should not make us into people who think we have all the answers. It should not make us into people who are constantly defensive. It should not make us into people who, whether it's on social media or whatever thing, insult those who disagree with us. Following Jesus makes us into people who are what? What did we talk about two weeks ago or last week? We're in spirit, meek, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. Those are the kind of people who can season the world around them. Those are the kind of people that can bring out the good in others. Those are the ones who can make the world a better place because they are so distinct. And while we may at times be offensive to the world around us, it is for the sake of the world. It is to show the world that there's another life possible through Jesus Christ. We're not hot sauce. We're not honey or salt. We're a contrast community. And that word community is super important. Notice, I think this is something you can easily miss in our individualistic culture. Jesus says, you are the salt, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Can you be a town by yourself? 
be a pretty lonely town, wouldn't it? You can't be a town by yourself. You literally can't be a town by yourself. Okay, Jesus up on the mountain is not trying to form a bunch of lone rangers who are going to go out and be salt and be light in the world. We are not called to be salt and light alone. We are called to be salt and life in community. Why is that? If you do this, if you go out in the world and you're salt and you're life, you challenge the world by yourself, you're likely to get burned out. Or you're likely to get assimilated into the culture around you. If you're with us at the, the first one of the series, I, I put a warning sign for you at the top of the mountain that says, do not try this sermon alone. Do not try this sermon alone. You cannot do this sermon alone. You cannot be a town by yourself. We've got to do this in community. We cannot underestimate how powerful community is in the formation of disciples. All right. We're salt and light, not optional practices for disciples. Salt and light means going out and being a distinct community that contrasts with the world around us, that offers both critique and hope. But more practically, what does that look like? Let me just offer you a few things. Look at verse 16. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. Good deeds are practical, visible deeds of love and compassion. Without these good deeds, we as followers of Jesus lose our credibility. Okay, good deeds communicate something that words cannot do. Uh, think about this. Think about the time someone, uh, you're walking down the street and someone comes up to you with a pamphlet. And they got, you know they got some kind of pitch for you. I don't know about you, but I want to move the opposite direction. Because... Not to say that everyone's like, it makes me feel like someone's trying to use me. It makes me feel like if somebody's trying to use you, you can sniff that out from a while away. And then imagine that, that this probably happened to you. You're in McDonald's, you're in Dunkin' Donuts, and, and somebody ahead of you pays for your meal or your drink. Are you suspicious? Are you like, hey, what are you As they drive away, what are you trying to pull there? No, you don't feel suspicious. You feel grateful. Good deeds are sacrificial. Good deeds are not trying to get something from somebody else. They're trying to offer something. Good deeds are other-oriented. They're good because they're beneficial to the other person. If you were at our congregational meeting last Sunday, one of the questions we talked about is, what does our community need from us? Meaning, what does our community in Columbiana and Greenford and these various places, what does it need from us? We're asking, what do my neighbors, my town, my co-workers need from me? If we, don't, if we don't take the time to ask that question and learn the answer to that question, we might offer them what we think they need, but maybe not even what they want. Okay, so what do we need? What does our community need from us? What good deeds? Well, let me just offer, there's a lot we can say, a couple of my own observations. If you want to perform a good deed today, just listen to somebody. We're living in a society that is experiencing unprecedented levels of isolation and loneliness. A good deed in a hurried culture is just sitting down and camping out and letting someone talk to you. You want to be really distinct? You want to do something crazy in our culture today? Wouldn't have been like that 34 years ago? Invite your neighbor over for a meal. That's crazy these days. That's very strange these days. That's pretty radical hospitality these days. Practice self-sacrificial deeds for the sake of others. But secondly, as salt and light, we are to point people to God. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The ultimate aim of our good works is not so that people notice us. The ideal for the disciple, the, the ideal scenario for a disciple 
is that someone actually sees our good deeds. They, that we kind of, as a disciple, fade into the background. That we don't, they, they barely even see us. They see the good deed, and the good deed then turns them to our Father in heaven to whom they give glory. Right? The, the, the point of good deeds is not so that we receive glory. It's not so that we look good. It's so that God looks good and God receives glory. Imagine a signpost on the road. Uh, that that signpost, signpost points you in the direction of the city. It has a function. It has a role. But the ultimate function of that signpost is to point to something beyond that. It's our role as disciples of Jesus. Our hope is not that we're going to make the world a little better place. We will. That's essential as disciples of Jesus. Our ultimate hope is that people will encounter, through those good deeds, our Father, and in turn give their lives to his Son. Let me conclude here with two things I think are easy to miss in this passage, I think because it's so familiar to some of us. When disciples of Jesus are not who they are, in other words, when we abdicate our duty as disciples of Jesus, there's some pretty harsh words that Jesus has about that. He talks about being thrown out and trampled by men. That's language of judgment. I just want to put, there's a really, I, I tend to miss it too, there's a very somber warning in this passage that if we are not who we are called to be, that that's a serious problem. But the second are much more hopeful. The second are the words, your father, okay? That they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Okay, if you're a disciple of Jesus, and we take this for granted, but I think, I'm sure this is the first time this is used in Matthew's gospel. We take this for granted, but when you become a disciple of Jesus, not only do you become salt and light, you have this new relationship with the creator of everything, with the creator of the universe. That creator of all now is your father, Such intimate language that Jesus will use when he teaches his disciples to pray. We are called to be salt and light to the world, and we're secure in the love of the Father. As we go out as salt and light, we, if we are rejected, we can handle that because we are secure in the love of God. Because we are empowered by the Spirit of God, even when things seem beyond our ability. And because we have the example of his Son, the light of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be who we are. We want to be as disciples, salt and light to the world. We want to be a distinct people who flavor the world, who improve the world, who preserve the world. We ask that whatever good deeds are done, we pray that those people might see those good deeds and not see us, but see you and give praise to you. We ask this all in Jesus' name.